I recently heard that in the evolution of our planet for the first millions upon millions of years before human beings came on the scene there was just vegetation and there were no flowers that all the vegetation was green there were grasses, there were trees, there were bushes but there were no flowers and that perhaps with some galactic event there were shifts of temperature, increases in the light but apparently all of a sudden one or two flowers started appearing and that it took many millions of years for the blossoming and the blooming of flowers to become commonplace in our world. And I have always, in the reading of the classical scriptures, felt most stirred by the analogy that is often offered that we are all like flower buds. We are all like the potential that was there in all of that greenery, all those shrubs, that we all like flower buds gently and slowly opening into our fullest loveliness. And if we go back over time to recorded history, we see that, you know, there were certainly the early flowers on our planet, the, the Buddhas, and uh, apparently there were a number of Buddhas preceding Siddhartha Gautama, who lived two and a half thousand years ago, and uh, Christ two thousand years ago, Muhammad, and certainly some of the Sufis. Not a lot of women in recorded history, probably because they flowered in patriarchal circumstances and their, their um, lives were not given the same importance as the men, but it seems like this flowering has been a part of the unfolding of, of, of human life. And when we look at what stirred the women and men of history, again and again the theme that seems to be ever-present through the, their experience of life, their investigation of life, their looking into the mystery and the unfathomable was the poignancy of this human life that we share. On the one hand, they saw beyond the shadow of a doubt that we live in a universe of relentless change that without exception, everything in our world arises and passes away. And to some extent, the essence of meditation is about bringing us to the ever deeper understanding that both within us and in the world around us, there is nothing that exists in exception of the natural world that everything that arises passes away. A thought arises, it's gone. A breath comes, a breath goes. We have a sunny day and a rainy day, so it goes. Our bodies age, get old, get sick, eventually they will die and then they'll be birth, life and death again. 
what they found particularly poignant was that along with this irrefutable truth of change is that we human beings live with a deep yearning for a security, for some solid ground beneath our feet, for something that we can hold on to. And when we put these two together, that with this yearning for security, and we live in a realm where there is nothing that endures, that our thirst for security is going to be relentlessly frustrated, and that there's going to be enormous suffering on whatever level it is that we are attached, that we cling, that we try and hold on, whether it's to our views or opinions, whether it's to our bodies, whether it's to the natural world, everything without exception is subject to these laws. And that suffering is not something endemic to our species. Suffering is the consequence of trying to hold on to what cannot be held on to. There's uh, in the Peruvian mythology, uh, the male god, the masculine, uh, is called Veracache. And the images of him are really beautiful. He's like this fierce guy, masculine, strong, the conqueror. And in each hand, he, he holds a thunderbolt, signifying that this realm that he's created is a fierce realm and a realm of enormous suffering. And what is extraordinary also about Virakacha is that under his eyes are these big tears that are falling down, all the way down the images to the ground. And that these are the tears that he is weeping as a consequence of perceiving how much human beings are suffering. And at the same time, the very tears that he weeps in sadness are the tears that form the rivers that nourish the ground, that provide the food and the sustenance for the human beings. And of course, the prayer as it was for the Buddhas, the Christs, the Muhammads, the Zarathustras, the Rumis, and the Hafizas is that some of us will choose to seize the possibility of our flowering amidst this suffering and that we will take responsibilities for our lives so that we open ourselves to the possibility of living with what Christ called that peace that passes all understanding, of living with a love that is unquestionably our birthright. And often it's through the fire of suffering that Barakacha was seeing that he was crying about, that it's through the fire of suffering that we are mobilized and that our flame arises and we decide no more, there must be another way to live this life that has meaning beyond this constant yearning to find security where it is an utter impossibility. And so it feels particularly at this juncture in the evolution of our world, this time when we look beyond the personal landscape of our lives out in the world and what's happening where there just seems so much endless toil and conflict and disease 
and suffering on so many different levels. It seems particularly important that there be those of us who are willing to come as we have done today to take an unblinkered and frank look at ourselves and our relationship with the world moment to moment to moment and begin to question some of the collective paradigms that have socialized us so deeply. These notions of the perfect appearance and the perfect body and perfect health as if anything less than that means that something has gone wrong. All the intimations of the importance of security and stability in our lives to which people devote every moment of, the, of their precious human life to try and fulfill and in the end we all die as we were born alone and we move on we can take nothing with us there is no security and yet we live in quest of something that is an impossibility and so as we come together in community today to look frankly at these illusions and begin to question them perhaps there there is the stirring there's the sense that there must be some other life that is possible where we can ride this relentless arising and passing away that is going on in every level and still know a kind of contentment but a contentment that is not conditional upon something not changing. And it's for this reason that spiritual practice that is transformational, that is concerned with freedom, must be one that brings us into harmony with the fact of these cycles of changes, that whether we look at this world microscopically as a nuclear physicist have done and have seen that the rocks, the stones, even the atoms are something in a constant state of change. And it's possible with our minds, as the Buddha did, to experience that, that atomical dissolution happening moment to moment. And then we widen the lens uh, into the world in which we live and take a macroscopic view. And we see too, we look at the tragedy of, I mean, uh, I live in Iran, for, for four years, and Iran was our friend at that time. And then the Shah was thrown out, and Iran became our enemy, and we made Iraq our friend, and armed Iraq against Iran. And then in Afghanistan, we made the Mujahideen our friends, and armed them against the Soviets. Now Iran's becoming more of our friends, and Iraq is now our enemies, and the people that we armed in Afghanistan are now the enemies, and so we go. It's like there's this constant change. The human realm on every level is going through ebbs and flows and changes. And somehow, can we find a capacity, a dignity, a maturity to be able to position ourselves as human beings in relationship to all this change in a way that doesn't bring more suffering, but that we become as St. Francis said we become instruments of peace and where there's hatred we are able to sow love. And I don't believe that what he is suggesting is something docile and something shallow. I think he's speaking from the deepest places. That there has to be some sort of both 
self-acknowledgement and collective acknowledgement to birth within us the capacity to, to be an instrument of peace in our deeply suffering world, the world that, were, that had Virakancha weeping tears and at the same time sustaining us in the hope that we will join the flowers of history and realize our potential. And so today, you know, as we consider this question, that how do we sustain a spiritual practice when things fall apart? It seems pivotal, both inwardly and when we look at the world in which we're living, that somehow there is both within all of us a capacity to hang in there with the long haul. It's hard. I mean, it's difficult. Even today, we've been here for a couple of hours. I mean, you probably noticed it's hard to stay present. You know, we slow down and it seems like the mind revs up. It's almost like it's got a mind of its own. We come here and all we feel is like we're coming back again and again and again. And it's like, do we give up in frustration or just gently without recrimination? I mean, so many of us treat ourselves so harshly, you know, I should be, I, I should be. I shouldn't be thinking, I should be with the breath, and we kind of add to, to the complications within ourselves. Can we develop this gentleness, this fierce gentleness, this capacity to just begin again, to start again, have what one Zen master called a long, enduring mind, just so that we're not fair-weather meditators or fair-weather journey women and journey men on spiritual path, that we have a practice that sustains us through what Zorba the Greek calls the whole catastrophe, that the whole catastrophe becomes the landscape upon which we begin to flower. And this, I feel, calls for the greatest self-responsibility. The, the words of the Buddha on my first retreat 22 years ago in South Africa where I was born and where I grew up, when I heard these words, I knew that this was trustworthy. And the Buddha said, hope I can remember, I've got it here somewhere. He says, believe nothing merely because you've been told it or because it's traditional or because your teacher tells you or your parents tell you. He said, don't believe anything that anybody tells you. But that way, which by thorough examination you find to be leading to good and happiness for all creatures, that path follows like the moon follows the path of the stars. A call to, the, I think, the fiercest kind of self-responsibility. <coughs> so he's saying, believe nothing. You know, don't believe what I say or what you know, Harrison says or what anybody says, but find out for yourself what's true and then have the courage to live it. It's enormous. It's enormous. In the early 1980s uh, was a really hard time for those in the gay community and, and also those who were involved in the gay community. It was a time when it was clear that um, something was happening and men were getting very, very sick and nobody knew what it was. It was a time of enormous 
prejudice. It was a time when people were actually dying of starvation rather than from the ravages of the disease at that time for which they had no medical intervention. And so people were actually so marginalized and peripheralized that that was actually more painful and more deadly than the disease itself. And over the course of those years, which were the beginning years of my own practice, when uh, I was in the monastery, it was scary for me to, when I came out of a retreat, to call to find out how people were, because it seemed like every time I did that, I heard of the friends who had died. And at the point where I'd lost 50 friends, I decided to stop counting. It just felt like there was an utter wasteland around me. I remember my mother saying to me that I was losing more friends, uh, and I was 30 years old at the time, than she was losing um, in her later years. And in 1989, I went to South Africa to be with um, a very dear friend, a boyfriend, an Afrikaans man um, of many years before, who was living with AIDS, and another friend, Michael. And we were all friends together, and all of them were gone. And Michael and Roy were the last. And as my plane touched down at the airport, Jansmark Airport in Johannesburg, and I called the hospital, they told me that Roy had died. And um, I spent a couple of weeks with my friend Michael, who was a mentor and a very wealthy man. And it was so painful because he was killing himself more effectively than the virus was doing. There was so much self-destructive behavior. There was so much anger turned inward. It was terribly hard being with him. And after being with him for a number of weeks, I went and was sort of recuperating with my parents in Durban. And one evening, my mom and I were playing cards, and my father gone to bed early. He wasn't well. And he called, and he was having a massive heart attack. And he died uh, in the bedroom and um, stayed there for a couple of months during which I got really uh, sick. And when I came back to the United States, had myself tested and discovered a month later that I was uh, HIV positive. And so in that moment, I took my place in the company and the community of all these friends who had gone and who had lived and died in the most terrible way. These guys had none of the benefits of the current understanding of the virus. Although, of course, there's no cure, there are ways in which the virus can be better contained these days. And so, as you can imagine, it was obviously stunning news, and the doctor who told me, I walked into his office and he said, you have tested positive, and he got up and walked out and left me there all on my own. And the first thought, that went through my mind like a gem, like a diamond sparkling, was I will not be defined by this virus. I am a lot more than this virus, and I will not. It was like a fierce roar that just to my great surprise burst in me. And in the next months, you know, I took care of the medical stuff I could, and I went on retreat. And that perhaps more than any other time for me in my life felt like a time when things utterly fell apart for me. It felt like 
every notion and dream that I had of what I was going to do with my life, every possibility, every hope was like in pieces around me. It felt like I was completely unglued by that and haunted by the memories of what had happened to my friends. And just saw how, how important it is and what a blessing it is to, to, to have choices. Because I feel like in the moment of my diagnosis, I had choices that not all my friends had. I felt like it was not an option for me to turn that diagnosis inwardly and exacerbate <coughs> a very difficult and complicated situation. And in the course of that long retreat that lasted about six or seven months, when I remember just sitting in a pool of fear, there was no way I could be mindful of the breathing. And walking was a nightmare because my head was all over the place. I just was tormented by thoughts and by fear. And yet, there was something that birthed in me during those times that I feel has been the greatest blessing of my life. What also happened during that retreat was that I, as part of this ungluing, there were recollections of sexual abuse that I knew had happened in my early years, but of what happened in my infancy involving my father. There were absolutely vivid memories of what had happened in the first months of my life. And so it felt like there wasn't any direction in which I could turn, where there was any security. Any notion of support and trustworthiness felt really precarious in every direction. And I came to see that the only security, the only area where there was any degree, any modicum of comfort, was in my capacity to be present moment to moment with the storm that was roaring through me. And I learned then, and when, you know, in our exploration today of how do we, how, how do we, how do we sustain ourselves, particularly during the times when things fall apart, what birthed itself on that retreat and feels like it's gotten stronger and stronger over the years, is the importance of living with a clarity of intention, of a sort of finding out what is the most important thing? What is the flame, the passion that is there? What is the priority? And it requires some soul searching. For me, the most important thing I realized was in this lifetime come hell or high water, to the extent that I have a choice, I will know what it means to love. And that is absolutely not negotiable. It's like that feels like it's the bottom line. And when we bless ourselves with an understanding of what is most important and look candidly and frankly at the things that appear to be important, things that are in the scheme of things very important, but what is the bottom line? What is most important? As that crystallizes and comes into focus, that sense of priority begins to define every facet and every aspect. What before was so complicated has become utterly simple. It's like, it's not the many anymore, the many things that are drawing the attention, the many things that are alluring. It's just the one. 
and then knowing what is most important, everything else then comes into focus. It's not that I've had some sort of lobotomy or, 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 or become unworkable. It's as if life has become utterly workable because much less energy is given to those things that are not in service to what is most important in my life. And so I feel for all of us as, as we grapple both with, with um, our personal landscapes and the particular issues that we deal with and as we broaden our vision and look at the world and think, what is going to sustain us? This all seems so unwell, overwhelming, whether it's a, you know, the fear we live with and for some it's anger, for some it's like a paralyzing depression, whatever it is, it's like if we clear what is most important and live with an unshakable resolve, we're not talking about a goal here, because any notion that we have about what this universe is about is, is probably faulty. But if we are willing to be free, if we are willing to be loved, and if our life unfolds, in a direction that feels like it's in service to what is most important. I feel that passion, that flame, can serve us when times feel so hard and we feel so shaken by events either around us or within us. It's kind of like just keeping our eye on the prize, no matter what it is that is arising moment to moment. And it's certainly my experience that as I'm able to look with a deeper and deeper clarity of what is most important is that life becomes wilder, it becomes more spontaneous, and there's more life than there's ever been before. So I feel it's not about moving out of the heart of life, it's about moving to the very center of life. Clarity of intent, sort of unshakable result in the gentlest and in the fiercest possible way. And when I feel one of the greatest blessings is that it's no longer about the many, it's about the one. And in this simplicity, in this clarity of intention, then you need to understand what the Buddha said when he said, Suffering uh, ripens into confusion, or suffering ripens into faith. Suffering ripens into confusion, or suffering ripens into faith. And fundamental, I think, to the possibility of suffering ripening into faith, into transformation, into unfathomable possibility for all of us, is a deepening capacity to face everything and to avoid nothing. And perhaps that would be the second area, is the clarity of intention. And the second is a willingness, a deepening willingness to face everything and avoid nothing. You know, this poignancy uh, of the human species is that, you know, we try to avoid, push away what we don't like, 
you hold on to things you get attached to what you do like. It's like something comes and it's uncomfortable, it's distasteful. It doesn't fit in, it doesn't grok with our paradigm of what is acceptable. We hide it, we avoid it, we camouflage it, we turn on the television, we have a drink, we smoke a joint, or whatever we do, but come face to face with what it is that is arisen. And I feel that if we bless ourselves with a deepening capacity to face everything, because the, the vision, I think, of real transformative spiritual practice, which of course uh, is a part of all the great spiritual traditions, must deepen our capacity to come to life both within us and around us with a frankness and a candor and with open eyes. Now Christ said in the Gnostic Gospels, he said, what we bring forth from within us will save us, and what we don't bring forth will destroy us. Can we bring forth what is within us into the light of awareness, into the landscape of acceptability, no matter how painful it is? And it's damn hard. It's so hard. And that's why today is such a blessing, because we have each other and we cannot deny that we're in this together. Sometimes it feels alone when you wake up, as I sometimes do in the middle of the night, and the fear's there, or there's some sort of panic attack, and we can feel so alone, and we feel utterly uh, different, and marginal, and peripheral. And yet we can remember moments like this when there are others who care. And even though we don't know one another's names, we can hear the heartbeats that we hear we are in this together, facing everything and avoiding nothing. So it's almost like, can we live life where our mantra is yes? Yes. It's pretty radical. Whatever arises within us, can the first response be yes? Because if you think about it, it kind of makes sense, just from a logical point of view, just, you know, not even existentially. It's like, if something arises and we don't like it, the impulse is to push it away. We're fighting. We're making it worse. We are avoiding. Can our first response be a yes? Which is not condoning. You know, it's not like 9-11. Okay. Can there be a heart that is big enough to say yes, this is where we as a species our collective has gotten to. That we can commandeer a plane and fly it into a building and kill thousands upon thousands of people. This is where we are as a species. This is what we as a species are capable of. Yes. 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 And if we don't accept it, what are we going to do? We could spend the rest of our lives fighting it. Or we could explore the capacity have the willingness to say, I'm willing to accept this. And out of that acceptance, I believe, will come a trustworthy response. Because I'm not saying that we become docile, that we abrogate responsibility. But until there is a capacity to accept everything, our response is to some degree untrustworthy. Because it is loaded and shot through with some degree of aversion. And if there's this capacity to say yes, and to 
feel all those parts of us that don't want to say yes and it's so painful and then we've come to a place of acknowledgement and it's oh my god yes yes it's my experience that birth in that yes birth in that willingness to come face to face with the whole the with with every facet of what is presenting itself we then become instruments, we then become trustworthy. We don't automatically have a knee-jerk reaction, we want to go and bomb and want to go and kill and we want to do something so that we can feel better, so that we can equalize the scores or something. But no, we, we are willing to populate landscapes within ourselves that are so uncomfortable. And yet if we cannot do that, if we cannot allow ourselves to be uncomfortable and to to, to feel the humility of all the places where we want to be reactive, where we want vengeance, where we want to fight back in some way that will make us feel better and feel how painful that is and how insoluble that cycle of continuing violence is. And then come back and feel again. I feel then we are beginning to take responsibility for our place in the collective. Because as we heal, these patterns of unwillingness to face what is there, I believe we're beginning to heal the world. We are, because we're all part of the web, the, the collective. It, um, we think, we think that we're part of the web out of which we could fall, but we can never ever fall. We are so intimate with one another. And the healing, the deepening healing of violence within ourselves is at the exact same time as the healing of the violence of the world. So important is it that we be here today. So important is it that we have the courage to come back again and again. Our mind wants us to come back to the breath and start again. This willingness to begin again and again, as I say in the instruction, just starting again, coming back to what is. The mind wanders, come back. I believe each each time we do that, we are changing the world. Unquestioned. There's this wonderful saying of the Sufis, and those of you who know me know that I love the, the, the Sufi poets a lot, which was birthed during my time in Iran. And the Sufis say, overcome any bitterness which may have come because you were not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world who carries the pain of the world in her heart, each one of us is a part of her heart. And each of us endowed with a certain measure of cosmic pain. You are doing you are sharing in the totality of that pain and are called upon to meet it in joy instead of self-pity. Joy instead of self-pity. And yet, I mean, there's just the humility of the, of the human mind. I mean, I think of Christ in Gethsemane, you know, before his arrest, his last night, they knew something was going to happen. But what happened? All the disciples go to sleep. Judas runs off and betrays him, and he's there alone. And you know, and you know, he says, he says, you know, you know, Father, 
you know, let this cup of suffering pass me by, you know. I mean, in that there was even uh, a measure of avoiding the suffering that's too painful, you know. And even when he's on the cross there, where he says, you know, Father, why have you forsaken me? You know, it's almost like he's blaming, you know. Just as we, as human beings, it's like something goes wrong, it feels good to have somebody to blame, doesn't it? I mean, it's just like it takes the sting off it. You know, if there's anybody to blame, whether we know them or not, we feel better. You know, Father, why have you forsaken me? You know? And then it's like his final words, of course, are, Thy will be done. You know, that the ultimate surrender. And, you know, I mean, in religious iconography, there's probably no more... Uh, uh, I want to say commonplace, it's not the right word, but I, I believe you know what I mean, you know, of Christ on the cross, and why is that so so engaging? And I think if you look at it mythologically rather than as, you know, as an event, I think stirring deep down in all of us, and not so deep down in some of us, like those of us here today, I think there's a knowing, we stirred, we know that Ultimately, the only way to engage and grapple triumphantly with the suffering of this world is to let go, thy will be done, to not fight and say, yes, yes. And can there be birthed within us the capacity when something happens, we say, it is because it could not be otherwise. Could it be otherwise? The only way we think it could be otherwise is if we have some sort of agenda. Well, we all know about having agendas. You know, it's kind of like that joke about, you know, tell God your, you want to make God love, you know, tell the God it's your plans, you know. And, you know, delivering these talks and stuff, you know, sometimes it sounds so easy and it's hard. I mean, we cannot say yes to the abuse of children, you know, yes. To, to the violence of war. And so I, I feel like maybe we can start by saying yes to the feelings, to the feelings that come up, as a way then perhaps to eventually get to, to the core of the issue. I have a friend in New York who is involved in the reconstruction of Ground Zero, and he's on this uh, civic panel trying to figure out what to do. And he was saying it's just terrible cultures because it's almost like like the way that it's been you know I mean that it's been mythologized I mean it's important that it never be forgotten and that it be acknowledged but he said he said what he's seeing is there's so much anger and rage and entitlement building up around it that it's preventing people from actually feeling and acknowledging what happened. It's almost like there's so much focus now on this monument and that they have enough space for this or that or the other that you felt that people are bringing so much energy, unfelt, undealt with energy to the issue that um, he said, you know, it's terribly uncomfortable to be in these meetings, you know. And I, you know, we don't have the answers, but just feeling into it and feeling the paradoxes and 
so complicated. And can we go to that landscape of being like you know, that part of us that wants to have an answer, that wants to be right, and we realize it's not about love. Being uncomfortable. So there's this resolve, the unshakable clarity of intention, and, and also just this willingness to, to face everything and, and avoid nothing. And it's all about a willingness, you know, the thing that I love so much about many of the ancient teachings is it's not that we have to actually, like, you know, at the end of the meditation this morning, I did the phrases of the loving kindness, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, or may all beings be happy and peaceful. And it's not that we're bad if we don't feel loving kindness and that we're really good girls and boys if we do. Which sounds funny, but I think all of us carry strands of that. You know, maybe that's behind what some of the laughter is, you know. It's that we just be willing. That all that is required of us is a willingness to face everything and avoid nothing. A willingness to live with the clarity of intention. And then it's, you know, the grace of the goddess or you know, it's a ripening and a blossoming of the flower. The loving kindness ripens in its own time. The capa- all we have to do is have the intention, have the willingness. The willingness to begin again and again and again. That's all that's required. You don't have to do it perfectly. You don't have to walk around with unadulterated loving kindness for the eight hours that you go on the tree. Just a willingness. A willingness to consider living with loving kindness. It's so beautiful takes a huge amount of, of weight, I think, off us when so often we're so ready to, to accumulate weight, you know, so often from shame and, and so often from guilt. And certainly another aspect of the meditation that seems terribly important in considering how it is that we keep going during the hard times. How are we doing, by the way? Are you okay? is it hasn't yet quite been developed in the meditation practice. So what I'm going to do, particularly for those of you who are new to the practice, is just go a little ahead of where we are in the instructions now. But, you know, so if you imagine, you may just want to close your eyes for a moment just to join me. So we're meditating and we're using the breath as a tool, just as a tool, and you're watching the changing sensations arising and passing away as an anchor, and then we we open, we release the awareness from the breathing and sounds. Sounds arise and pass away, okay? And then the thought arises, and the thought arises with awareness, and we don't judge it, we don't add words, it comes, it goes, we come back to the breathing, then we open to other sensations in the body. They arise, they pass away, and then smell comes. You know, all these different sense organs. Smell arises, passes away, it's gone back to the breath, our anchor, and then there might be some concentration, there might be some collection of mind, and then we don't have to use the breath. Be open to other feelings in the body, hot, cold, tingling, and tightness, and they just come and go, and don't add words, and then a thought, and then emotions arise, and it's just, we 
energy of anger arises, passes away, and fear comes and goes. So that, for those of you who are new to the practices, the vision that we develop the capacity to be with whatever arises. We are so socialized into the body that if something goes wrong, if things fall apart, then we have done something wrong, or that somebody else has done something wrong to us. And as we get caught, as human beings, so poignantly in these cycles of blame, inner blame, out of blame, we deliver ourselves from the landscape of transformation, more surely than any other way, moving beyond life and wrong, such a blessing. And as we begin to see things in this more impersonal way, spiritual, uh, spiritual practice, meditation, or whatever, as we begin to take things less personally, where things are not referenced to me all the time, my anger, my fear, it's just the fear, the anger. And we begin to really know beyond the shadow of a doubt that there is no Gavin, there's no Anne, there's no Lorraine, there's just fear, there's just the energy of anger, but it's thought, sensation in the body, arising, passing away. Then we are stirred, our practice doesn't become selfish. You know, so often, perhaps this happened for you when people say, what are you going to do on Saturday? I'm going to go on a meditation retreat. And people think, how self-involved, you know, how self-centered. You know, they go in, they get to sit on a cushion, they get to, you know, meditate with themselves of themselves. But when the meditation practice, when spiritual practice, deeply and profoundly becomes in service to the whole, where it's not, where there's no personal paradigm uh, informing the flame and the passion that is giving energy to our capacity to begin again and again, where you see and know beyond the shadow of a doubt that when one woman is diagnosed with breast cancer, we are all malignant. When one person has AIDS, we are all infected. No one is immune. We are that intimate. When one child is abused, when one woman is starving in Sudan, we are all abused. We are all starving. We are all infected. And life is lived not by contrivance, but by understanding from that place then the fuel is limited because we see that the suffering of every human being is our suffering. Not in some intellectual way, but beyond the shadow of a doubt, we feel that in the self of our body. And nothing makes sense more than a life committed to the benefit of all sentient beings. And that's what the Bodhisattvas are in the Buddhist tradition. People who have committed their lives, they will not be fully enlightened until everybody is gathered up in their arms and joins them in the awakening of the possibility. And so, just in closing, I feel it's really important to include in this exploration of 
how do we sustain ourselves through the long haul? How is it that we keep going through the deepest and darkest of times? And certainly I think one thing that's really important is having some sort of foundation in one's life, some sort of regular practice, some place that we can touch in our life that is sacred, carry like the fragrance of, of, of the beyond, of, of the possibility of our intention, that whether it's meditation, whether it's a place in nature that we go to, for refuge, something that sustains us because we live in a world that is suffering so enormously and it's so easy to lose our center and to lose our perspective. And so as a meditation teacher, uh, it is customary, although I tend not to do it, to, to really suggest strongly that you know a daily practice is a really good thing to, to meditate every day. I'm kind of more of the school of saying, you know, praying full set, you know, it's like, that's where we are now. I don't think we can afford anything less than that. And so, you know, can we make whatever little gentle, kind effort is necessary to live our lives more presently in every possible way? Some sort of consistency so that as we go through the corridors of our lives, we are living this practice. And it's not a cushion trip and something that we do for an hour a day or once a month. A and I think it's so important to have in one's life the company of those who reflect back to us what is most important. To have other hearts around us from time to time that keep in the same rhythm, that are stirred by the same passion that are committed to knowing what it means to love, to be awake, that that piece of possible understanding that I think all different facets of, of um, what it means, you know, to live a full and responsible human life. You know, there's that great interchange between the Buddha and his disciple Ananda where Ananda says to the Buddha, is it true that, that good spiritual friends are part of the holy life? And the Buddha said to Ananda, said, no, Ananda. Ananda was always wrong. I think Ananda, <laughs> he was always wrong. And he said, no, Ananda, you're wrong. He said, you know, good and noble friends, the association of good and noble friends and good and noble practices, it's the whole of the whole life. And so what a blessing that we have each other to do. You know, we, we, we really are a family. We really are, 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 are a family, a community. And then I think there's the, the responsibility that each of us have as part of that responsibility that I mentioned that the Buddha spoke about is that to find what it is that nourishes us, what is it that stirs us, what is it that, that we turn to that um, evokes what is most important. You know, for me it's, um, you know, it's poetry often and artwork and music and coming out to the week, no matter how how difficult and complicated and insoluble something might feel, just being out on the week with all that loveliness reminds me beyond a shadow of a doubt that this universe is also utterly beautiful and beloved and perfect. 
And so, you know, I think it's really important in our world that in some way it seems to be growing increasingly darker that we take the responsibility for informing our lives profoundly of the light in whatever way the light stirs us. Really important. And just keeping the sense of urgency alive, keeping a sense of what's most important. Lots of the Buddha's teachings were about inculcating a sense of urgency. And he used teachings on death as a way of really waking people up, you know. And the next retreat in January will be a two-day retreat. I'll be doing with Frank Ostasetsky, who's the founder of the Zen Hospice Project in San Francisco. And um, we'll be looking at some of the practices. And Frank has pioneered hospice work with Kubler-Ross and Stephen Levine. And so um, you know, I know I'm going to learn a lot from him, but skillful ways of bringing ourselves to that place where we shadow the doubt, know that this life is both precious and fragile and not to be wasted. I mean, it's an incredible how much of life is spent postponing what it is that is most important. And the, the Buddha used contemplations on death and the, the Burmese monastery argued that all the practices that we did were on mortality, on death. Not because it was gloomy and morbid and, and to scare the living daylights out of us, but it was just to, to help bring us to that place of knowing, my God, every moment is so job because we never know truly what's going to happen in the next moment. I mean, that understanding informs our life. We begin to live in a way that was never possible before. circumstances of our time and the poignancy of whatever our particular circumstances might be. I share with you the words of one of the great high adventurers of our time, Mr. Frodo Baggins, <laughs> the hobbit from the Shire. When he says to Gandalf the wizard, he said, I wish the ring had never come to me. Does anybody not know the uh, he's entrusted with taking this ring of immense power and returning it to the fire to force it so that it could not be used for evil in the world. So it's a tiny little hobbit, you know, and his buddy Sam was going this high adventure and the, the, all the forces of darkness are rallied against them. And it's just this incredible mythology of good and evil and the triumph of goodness and human spirit and, you know, the forces of darkness and Mordor are beyond description and these movies are so great and not all great for them. Just the truth to be known. So, anyway, so he says to Gandalf, the, the wizard, the wizard in white, you know, the light, you know, he says, hey, I wish the ring had never come to me because everybody was tempted by this waiting that he's carrying it, you know, alone, and he said, I wish that none of this had ever happened. 
And Gandalf said to him, So do all who have lived to see such time. But that is not for them. All you have to do is decide what to do with the time that is given. All you have to do is decide what to do with the time that is given. Thank you. Maybe sit together for a moment. shorter meditation period and then a discussion period, then um, of course, you know, the few people, any words that need to be spoken relating to the talk or the meditation, and then we'll break for lunch. Does that seem like a good idea? Does somebody volunteer to be the dominator for the next walking period? It's now 25 to 12. Would you ring the gong at 12 o'clock? I would like to invite those. Are there any questions about the walking meditation practice? Specifically about the practice. Any difficulty? Any clarification? What is helpful with the walking practice is to give yourself a length of space, wherever that might be, and just to go back and forth, because it is the nature of the mind that if your mind is as shameless as my mind can be, is that it will use any opportunity to kind of get away from itself. And so if you define a certain amount of space the space to do is like a container and then just do the back and forth um, of the walking. And there was a period of time in the early years of my practice when um, I was having a lot of trouble with my back and so I was on a long retreat and I couldn't walk because I was in bed. So I just would like to share with you how I was able to do walking meditation practice, unable to walk. <laughs> 
because who knows, you know, when it's not going to be possible. And this is the way I found. And what I did was, I would just rest my hand, and maybe we could just do it together. I mean, if you could just hold your hand up, imagine you're lying on the bed, so you can maybe put your elbow at your side, and then <coughs> slowly drop the arm down, and just be with the sensation. You know, you can use a label like down, down, <coughs> sensation, and just let the sensation arise, or the lack of sensation, and go all the way down to feeling the palm of the hand have some relaxed or on the cushion, and then stopping, <coughs> and then turning the hand around, and then coming back, slowly. If a thought comes, let it go and come back to the sensation, whatever they might be. And something again. And I after that just to underscore what I think is one of the most essential aspects of this particular meditation is the vision that everything that arises is ultimately workable. And so, not to postpone the cultivation of that capacity to be present, but to use whatever the circumstances are to cultivate a mind that is more comfortable being present and is less inclined to discourse. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.